The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. Hey, you know, we, uh, this is the last of our kind of unstructured talks, and, and so last week I gave you a talk that was uh, titled Legacy versus Legion, and, and some of you had a fun time joining me in that journey of going, working our way back from like about 150 A.D., through the cities of Corsi to Decapolis to uh, Jesus feeding the 4,000 to a year earlier and Jesus interacting with one man. And we see, though he had called himself Legion, the legacy that he actually left behind. But, you know, I, I know that for some of us that if you're like me sometimes, you, you allow a, a small sliver of your life or two maybe episodes in your life to color your entire life. It seems to be that, you know, I, I'm this, I'm that, I've done this, I've done that. And even if you are, are part of a religious community or spiritual community like this, and, and, and even though in your own head you, you, you've read about, you've spoken about, in fact, you're the kind of person where you'll fight for the ideals and you'll share the ideals and you'll share the, the message of Jesus with, with your friends that are broken or are hurting or are lonely or struggling. But, but it, it's hard for you to, to, to wrap your mind around it. It's hard for you to experience it. You have it in your head. You could write it out in a, in, on an essay. You could explain it. You know, you would, you'd have passing grades in your theology one classes, but, but actually living it and experiencing it is, is different because it seems that it applies to everyone else but me. And uh, so since I'm on a roll of favorites, I'm going to tell you another one of my favorite stories this morning and it involves the life of David. I, I just have grown to you know, enjoy this character's life and so here's David and, and I'm not sure what you picture the David and Goliath scene but you know, he, he was, you know there's always this Sunday school version of David and Goliath. This small skinny boy, looks like he's nine or ten, he's wearing a diaper, he's got a slingshot, there's this huge troll over here, a baldy. You know, the teardrop tats and the little the diamond, cause so you know he's done time. Israel is nothing, you know. Oh, no, you didn't. Get your nines, brother, come on. You know, so there was that. <laughs> Coming by in a lowrider, bumping it, you know. Yeah. You don't have to be Mexican to laugh, but it will help. But you, but you know, it's funny, the, the Sunday school story always shows David and Goliath. It never really showed the Goliath maybe down. Maybe they do, right? But they never show the, the next verse where David takes out the guy's sword and begins to slice through his head and then get to the bone and have to crack it through the vertebrae and then keep cutting and then, you know, it got stuck and slice and slice and slice and finally cut through and then grab it by the hair as it's dripping fluid, walking back to Saul and saying, yeah, yeah, I think I killed him. And if he's not dead, he's not doing too well. So right, so right, you know. Uh, so that kind of thing, all right. So you have to picture a, a guy maybe more in his uh, late teens, early 20s as a youth. David was a, uh, so he was a, uh, you know, a killer. I mean, let's just, you know, he had no problem. He had the ability to actually dispatch somebody. Some of you guys who've been in fights, you know what that's like, where there's that nervous energy and there's the adrenaline going. And, but to actually kill somebody is quite a different thing, and David had done that. So David was not unaccustomed to having to you know, plunge a knife, a sword into someone's flesh and feel that 
tension and pull it out. I mean, his sword had been bloodied. Hearing the moans of people, um, directing people to kill people, right? He becomes uh, the leader of, of his nation. And um, I guess I picture this very rugged guy's guy, but also a musician. Plays the harp. And, and he had such a, an emotional complexity that when he would think of God and his experiences, it, it, would, it would almost burst out in this rapturous poetry as if this love was almost for a love of a woman. And he would write beautiful experiences of God. Some of you who read his poetry in the Psalms, you're, you're still spoken to a move today. A lot of his poetry has been converted to contemporary uh, music and you know we put rhythm to it and, and, and he was also a musician so you could put you know rhyme and reason to this music and but you know everything has a dark side you know every warrior who cares for justice and stands up for the um, for the little guy can also become with the bad character uh, violent and monstrous and a bully aggressive and in a very ugly way every poetical musician um, you know become with, with bad character can be that lustful sensual person who you know, just sort of ex luxuriates in, in a very erotic, unhealthy way. And, you know, whenever I read the life of David, and I've gone through it many times, I get to chapter 11 of Second Samuel, and I just want to say, God, don't do it, you know? Don't do what you're going to do. But he does. And let me take you there, Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at a time when kings goes off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, so the first verse, very normal. If you watched any kind of docu military documentaries or if you're a war person at all, you know that what destroyed Napoleon and stopped Hitler and was generally going to war in the winter. You just don't. It's just not good strategy, and so um, it's too cold to fight. But in the spring, a young man's heart turns to, to love and to killing one another. So one evening, David's at home. He got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was really beautiful, very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. So the man said, um, now you have to kind of hear the tone. Dave, you're barking up the wrong tree. Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he gives her two, you know, titles. Like, this is the daughter of some guy. She's the wife of another man. You know, you have to kind of feel there's a bit of, you know, you don't tell the king, dude, what are you doing? But you, you want to give the king an opportunity to come to the conclusion that you want him to come to which is stop looking and stop inquiring. And David sent messengers to get her, being the king, and she came to him and he slept with her and she had purified herself from her uncleanness and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So in that one verse you have about two to three months. So, I, you know, I, I don't know, I, I've heard so many takes on this how you know, David blew it, and David, he, he wasn't, if he had gone to war, he would have not have done this, and you know, there's the lesson that, 
you know, when you're doing what God wants, you'll not make mistakes, which is baloney, right? Because you know how that happens. You do what God wants, and sometimes you do make mistakes, and sometimes stupid ones. Oh, and you know, Bathsheba, what a tramp, you know. It's, and, and it's almost like all that ugly notions of women who are sexually assaulted, it's somehow their fault. There's, it seems like that's been transferred and placed on Bathsheba. Like, well, she was bathing. Surely she must have known. Well, you know, okay, the, the beginning of that verse story tells me that there might have been an assumption that there wasn't many men or the king in town. Um, the other thing is, is that this is not really an uncommon thing. People would bathe on their roofs. Uh, it's cooler, it's, it's outside, and you know, there's, no in, there's no showers. It's not a, this is not an a inappropriate act. You know, if you're reading it with Western sensibilities, it sounds so odd. And on top of that, most likely there would have been some sort of like a linen smock. So, you know, she's probably doing that. And, and David, um, I, I tell you though, what I do feel about David is that, um, uh, you know, an older man taking advantage of a younger woman, uh, taking advantage of his, of his position, of his role, um, you know, seducing her, you know, maybe speaking to her in a way that he knew that she needed to hear. I, I don't know. But, but to me, this is David. It's not Bathsheba. I mean, I understand this, it wasn't explained as a rape, but, but David made the initial contact. Now, it's interesting to point out that this is a Hittite. They're not Israelis. They're not Jewish. So these are people that at some point, uh, Uriah said, hey, you know what, I, I'm going to stake my claim. This is what makes it so horrible to me. I'm going to stake my claim with the God that you serve, King David, because you're a great guy. And he takes his family with him and his wife with him. And at some level, he entrusts his family, his wife, his, his name, his religion, his God, his country, changes it because of, the, because of David. And David takes his wife. It's like that slimy guy from Northern California that's, uh, oh, um, the mayor. <laughs> I couldn't think of it. Uh, from San Francisco that, that had an affair with his campaign manager's wife. You know, it's along those lines. It's like it's, it's slimy and oily to begin with, but then this was your best friend. This was the guy that helped you get into office. And, and this is sort of that thing. And, and so now she tells him, hey, dude, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. He says, hey, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And then when Uriah came to him, David asked him, hey, how's... Uh, uh, how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how's the war going? Did you listen to the latest music on iTunes? What's going on? You look good, you know? Just seems seem to be kind of shooting the breeze. And David said to Uriah, hey, listen, it's good to hear from you. Go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, well, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master's Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will never do such a thing. Oh man, there's nothing worse for a, a, a treacherous guy dealing with a loyal, honest one. It's the worst. It's a problem, yeah. How do I deal with somebody with integrity? How do I corrupt him? I can't, so I have to kill him. You know, I, I, I read this and, and, and I think maybe at times, because I've, I've seen some destruction in my, um, my life, 
in, in, you know, your family, when, you know when you go back to the family tree and you find out, oh my God, I, I'm a descendant of criminals, you know, and, and, and you almost assume that somehow that the physical DNA maybe has a spiritual DNA. There might be something that's, that's transferred down. And, and some of you think, because I'm the daughter of or the son of or related to this family or this group or this type of culture that you're, you know, sort of a person that will not fully experience God. I mean, there's this thing in the closet, a talking, active skeleton. So David sent to him, stay here one more day and, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next and David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, so he tries to get him drunk. Well, what else would you do? It's, this is an old, old ploy, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Wow, this is cold, isn't it? The letter that Uriah is carrying is his death sentence. It's the hit. It's the contract. It's the order for Joab to make sure that Uriah dies. And Uriah, being a faithful, loyal guy, See, the curiosity would have gotten the better of me. Yeah, I'll get this to him. You're reading the sunlight, something, you know. Steam it open with the steamers. You guys ever done that with an envelope? I've heard it works. Um, so in it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting's the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So, you know, this is what I, I, I picture this scene. He, he, he goes to Joab. You know, Joab, yes, I have a letter from the king. Oh, Joab gets it. Let me see. What is it? And he reads it, and Uriah is standing there in front of him. What's it say? <laughs> You're not going to have a good day, man. I mean, I don't know. What, 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 hey, he likes you. He really is fond of you. What does Joab say? And so now David's actions include Bathsheba, include Joab, include Uriah. So while Jaab had the city under siege, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell, and moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king the account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of this person? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tebez? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked you this, you would say to him, hey, also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messengers were sent out. When he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us, overcame us out um, against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. When the, arrow, when the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So David told the messenger, well, you know, in every battle there's going to be a loss. So tell Joab, hey, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. You, you press the attack against the city and destroy it. So say this to encourage Joab. You know, when, um, when, you're, when you're in that fork in your road, when you have to decide if I'm going to change maybe a certain habit or thought pattern or actions, and you think, well, I've already done this. 
Ah, screw it, I'm just going to do it all. That's kind of where David is. I'm already at the hotel. Oh, forget it, I'm just going to sleep with her. I'm already at this place. I'm already, I'm already two shades, you know, two sheets of the wind. I'll just have another. You follow? You know, I've already, I've already yelled and broken something. Let me just break something else. You, you know what I mean? You, you begin to think just, it, it's almost like an act of self-loathing. It's almost like an act of, of um, well, I'm already a rotten person. I might as well just be more rotten. And David, I think, does something like this when he says, well, it happens. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. So, I mean, I don't know what you picture. Maybe some of you are thinking, oh, Uriah, Bathsheba, what a trashy woman. I, I don't know. I just, I, I, listen, she was married to this man, and now he's dead. And so I, I, now she's got, you know, the baby thing going on and all the chemical hormonal changes that are happening, and now she hears her husband's dead. And, and you know, I could just picture, I guess, a very elegant Jewish woman, with, well, not so Jewish, Middle Eastern woman, black hair and the, you know, the clothes, and just weeping. I mean, you know, everything just is horrible at this moment. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought into his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, I should say so. Some of you know that later on um, in the next chapter, uh, almost a year goes by, and there, there's something about, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, let's, let's uh, we're all family here, right? I mean, when, when, when you know you're doing something dark on a continual basis, I mean, I'm not talking about there's a slip up. I mean, you're just, you're just sort of like giving up and surrender to it. There's, um, it's, it's a little hard to feel close to uh, the God that you believe in. You know what I mean? Um, David goes about a year, nine months to a year, and, and uh, there's just this a disconnect. And, in, and, and as an act of kindness on God's behalf, he sends a spokesperson or a prophet to David to finally force him to come clean. It's in 2 Samuel 12. And so David was really guilty of a couple of crimes that would have qualified him for execution by stoning, um, the adultery, the murder, and then involving all those other people. Um, as, at the end, uh, David, uh, it just... Uh, you know those moments when you vomit up all your crap and you just, it's like confession? You know, I, I think the Catholics are onto something, you know, that, that, that they, you know, you have to go to confess before you take communion and connect with God. And I think at some level, and Protestants, we, we, we kind of downplay that confession thing. James talks about it, confessing your faults one to another so that you can be made whole or healed. I don't mean blabbing your stuff like on a blog. Facebook page, hey, I did, you know. I, I just mean that sometimes a person that's wise and cares for you, that maybe you just need to throw all that up sometimes. And, and it's, sometimes it's, it's relieving and there's, there's, it's emotional and there's weeping. And, and, it, and, and you begin to feel love from the community, which is the extension and expression of God's love to you. I mean, that's the benefit of community. Listen, if any of you screw up, if I screw up, I'm not leaving. You shouldn't leave. Where are you going to go? This is our community. This is my community. I mean, you know, the funny thing about people in my job is that if they screw up and do something stupid, they have to leave. I've never understood that. It almost makes it sound as if, well, what was he doing there? Was he just hired to, to talk and he wasn't any, a part of this community? 
I guess the other thing that, that, that comes to my mind here about this is that some of you, are, 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 you live in the wake of, or the path or the trajectory or, or, or the swath of mess that other people have cut. And, and you're living in it. It might be parents, it might be, uh, I don't know, coaches, teachers, whatever. And so their shortcomings, their failures have, have affected you and you're like an innocent bystander. You, you get the backlash of something that had nothing to do with you. It's almost like a, a moral drive-by. Bullets go flying and, and some innocent bystander gets, gets killed or maimed. It had nothing to do with the incident and the event. You know, the baby from this moment dies. Um, before the baby died, was, was ill, and David spent time at the temple of God, uh, praying for the baby, pleading God to, to save the baby's life. He wrote Psalm 51 and some other psalms. Uh, he, he talked about the, just the poison and the aching of his soul. It, it just seemed every time he was away from God, that whole time, it was just so difficult to function. The baby died anyways. And Bathsheba had to go through that loss in that morning. You know, just the guy that just made that, you know, it, it almost seems silly, some dumb little thing. You, that, you know, hey, who's this girl? King, well, she's the daughter of somebody and she's the wife of somebody. Oh, cool. Send the messenger. And, and then there's more and more destruction following that decision, right? But the interesting thing is that the, the second child born to David and Bathsheba was a young man named Solomon, um, uh, a male child that God names Jediah, which means beloved of God, which is also what David's name means. And um, now David's life, I'll tell you, wasn't quite the same afterwards. I think maybe he lost some of his zip. Um, there's just something different. But Solomon is the result of that relationship. Now I want to take you to another passage, um, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. I'm going to give you David's two worst moments. That was the first one. Here's the second one. Now uh, let me explain it and I'm going to read some verses out of this chapter. It's kind of long. Um, so I mean I have to set it up or otherwise it's going to seem silly. In Deuteronomy, one of the first five books of the Bible, uh, God had given instructions to Moses for a future king. And he says to them, do not depend on the size or the strength of your army to, for as far as battles. Whether it's too small or too big, that doesn't determine the outcome. It's going to be me. And so the pro prohibition was, don't count the army. Because the tendency would be that if I count them and I feel like it's not enough, I'm going I'm to shrink back from what God tells me. If it, the army is too big, I might be too confident and not depend upon God. And so it was a protection for the king and the nation to rely on God and not the strength of their resources. All right, so this is a good principle for us, correct? Okay. So David, this is about, um, about 10, 15 years. Chapter 21, 1 Chronicles. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab, this guy again, hey, um, and the commander said, hey, listen, go out and count the uh, Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Now, Beersheba is in the south, 
Dan is in the north. So it's like saying, count everybody from Los Angeles to New York. That's what he's saying. Count everybody. All right? Then report back to me so I may know how many there are. Joab, again, has to sort of indirectly imply it. Well, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times, my lord, the king, but are, not, are, are they not all the Lord's subjects? I mean, why would you want to count us? It's not a good idea. Why does the Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. Sometimes it's not good to be the king. So Joab left, went throughout Israel, and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to David, and in all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin. Now, Levi and Benjamin are two different tribes, or part of the 12 tribes, and, and part of it is that the Levitical tribes were priesthood. Benjamin was a different deal. They were very small and significant. Um, but if you read the rest of this verse, they just like were so put off with this action, like, no, you're not counting us, we're not reporting numbers, we don't want to be part of this. Verse 8, then David said to God, I have done, I have sinned greatly by doing this, now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant, I've done a very foolish thing. Verse 9, the Lord said to Gad, David's seer, spokesperson, a prophet, listen, you go and tell David, um, he gets to pick his punishment. Did you guys have parents that did that? You get an electrical saw or... I still remember that hearing that bell come out of my dad's as it goes through the loops, the cinto, right? (laughs) Or anybody get spanked with like, go get a switch. (laughs) And you're going through the tears trying to cut the little teeny one that's really green, you know? Oh my gosh. Like I've said before, if you get in trouble in a Hispanic house, that's not good because everything's a weapon. A chancla, let me see that. Just, just, and it's like they're a part Australian because they could throw this, hit you, and they would go, and they come right back and they put it back on. <laughs> and not miss a beat as they're walking out of the house. And, and Mexican moms can multitask making tamales, tortillas, horchata, and, and spank you at the same time. Wow, catch your soup. All right, any rate, a little peek into our culture. So God gives David a chance to pick his punishment. All right, so go tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. This is what the Lord says. Take your choice. You can have three years of famine. Not so good. Three months of being swept away before your enemies. Also not so good. With their swords overtaking you. Or three days of the sword of the Lord. Days of plague in this land with the angel of the Lord ravishing every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Not only are some of us living in the wake and in the, um, the backlash of other people's mess, some of us are the ones that are setting that mess for others behind us. And... Um, you just recognize that, that, that your life uh, has exploded on others. Your shortcomings, your failures, your deliberate acts of darkness, and, and, and acting in, in your worst self. Maybe anger, and well, usually it's hurt. I mean, I, 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 I trace back every angry, horrible moment in my life to some sort of hurt, you know, some sort of 
neglect, some sort of being left behind, some sort of you know, problem with detachment, something. And it seems like maybe in a way to anesthetize that, I have to, you know, it's come out in, even fear, it, just, it seems to uh, you know, come out in anger. It just seems always, it's never anger by itself, it seems to be rooted in something else. And so, so now David is in that moment having to choose what should happen to people because of his actions. So David said to Gad, man, I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but don't let me fall into the hands of, of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. Now let me stop here for just a moment. You are the king. You set the spiritual tone. You're an influencer. You are that person. And so now as you go through your land or you at night, because you know, there's no iPods, there's no music, there's no nothing, and what you hear is the wails of women and men and children because their fathers have died, their sons have died, their brothers are dead, and you know you caused it. These people had nothing to do with it. And, and so you have to go to sleep at night hearing this. And I mean, I, I feel for him, but I feel for those people as well. And, and the questions that that would cause, and it almost seems, and if you're, you know, listen, if you're thoughtful and reflective, let's be honest, this seems a little inhuman, doesn't it? It goes on. God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it. And he was grieved because of the calamity. And he said to the angel who was destroying the people, hey, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing on the threshing floor of Aranuhab, the Jezebite. Now, uh, Jebu was the name of, of Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem, all right? So he's standing in what an area will now be futurely called Jerusalem. So I don't know how, what you picture this being like. Certainly not those cherub little pudgy angels from the Renaissance, right? I have to picture maybe more of an MMA fighter, mixed martial arts, you know, uh, with wings. And um, David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord. That'd be kind of a sight standing between heaven and earth with a sword drawn in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be caught? And I'm the one who sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? O Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me, my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar on the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that God had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you the rest of the, of the chapter. So David goes to the man, this Arianob, okay? He says, hey, look, I, I want to buy this threshing floor from you to offer sacrifices, where I, where I saw the angel that, that was distributing this plague. And the fellow says, no, let me give it to you. And David repeats the classic line that you've heard. I will not give anything to the Lord that doesn't cost me something. So he, he insists on paying for it and he pays for it. All right? And he buys that piece of land where he saw that angel. He offers sacrifices. The plague stops. And David has something else to live with as well. Now, this is where the story takes an interesting turn because, you know, that wasn't interesting up to now. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build a temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was the threshing floor 
of Aranuab, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. And Solomon began building on the second day, the second month, in the fourth year of his reign. I'm not sure this is uh, fleshed out, so I want to maybe tell you why this is so fascinating to me. Two, two of David's worst moments resulted in the building of the temple. The, the, the product of a relationship that was uh, illicit and should never have happened, Solomon, at a spot where David connected with God, the, the angel of death who was spreading death because of David's second biggest failure in his life. When you read the, the following chapter in, in, the, in First Chronicles, you see that David, after he buys that piece of land, he starts collecting all the, the, the wealth to build the temple, the gold, the precious stones, the, the silver, the linen, the cloth, and, and whether it's um, your regular history books or perhaps um, Bible aids, this was a magnificent temple. It, it ranks as one of the most gorgeous buildings around probably three to four stories high, overlaid with gold, the marble, um, the embroidery in the cloths, the, I mean, the smell of the incense, the, the just, it was an exquisite place, and God wanted to build a place where he says specifically, I can meet with people that I love, meet with you, meet and connect. But the best part I love about this is that that temple was built by Solomon on the site where David sees this angel. And then you might say in this strange way, David, you know, had screwed up royally. I mean, there's just no way to get around that. But some of, some of us, right? Some of you are embarrassed like I have been. I think, well, a few months ago, I, I was listening to a speaker who said, I don't live with regrets, I don't have any regrets. And I remember I had to stop the, 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 the talk and I, 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 it was hard for me to process that. And I, and I realized that I'm not that guy. And then I thought, well, I know this guy's life. Why doesn't he have some regrets? And as I was beginning to process this further, I remembered this story. Because he was able to step into a moment of forgiveness. You see, I think for some of us, as it has been for me, that you can tell your friends and your family about Christ and forgiveness and they get hopes, but you, you just, you, you, you'll fight for the ideals, but you just can't experience it for yourself. Somehow you just refuse to. And at, you know, 35 plus years of being a follower of Jesus, I had a, a different moment with Christ and knowing that my life is not just failures and mistakes, they're not just moments of where I regret, but there's a total picture. And I was able to get, receive another layer of forgiveness for my life. And here's the funny thing, as I was set free there, I was able to forgive uh, you know, a, a, a certain family member in a, in, a, in a fuller way that I thought I had already done, uh, a friend, you know, a, a teacher, you know what I mean? There's those people that were, when you were small and vulnerable, that they hurt you, maybe physically, maybe verbally, maybe, you know, emotionally, they, they just, you know, and, and you, you still kind of carry that crap around, and it's just stewing in there, and 
And then when you make mistakes of your own, you just think, well, I deserve it. I'm this person. And you just think, ah, you know. And I, I love this story, how, da- how God takes David's two worst moments to create the most magnificent monument in Israel's history to demonstrate his kindness and his love for him, for his people. Let me close with this last message. I mean, it's found in Romans chapter 8, and we'll dismiss with this. Chapter 8, verse 26. See, I, 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 I know some of you have had moments where you're just coming face to face with yourself and who you are and your totality, and, and you see something maybe you don't care for, and you're not even able to articulate any longer. You just, maybe you just sort of, you just have that, that sorrow and that weeping. What I love about that moment is that um, God says, I, I, I get it. And what you wept about in silence, what you regretted, what you lost, what you're mourning. I hear those prayers like incense rising. So in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, because we don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groans the words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. Verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who can called according to his purpose. For those who God knew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And among those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Verse 37. So in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, not the present, not the future, not any powers, not height or depth or anything else in creation, not even ourselves, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The, the story of your lives, um, you might think you know the ending, but the ending is, is never finished being written. And when you give yourself to the author and the finisher of faith, he writes a totally different finish to your story. Okay, let me pray with you. And, um, you know, I'm going to go a little old school here for just a moment. I want to give you guys a little bit of liberty here. If you wish to, you know, take a knee or stay in your chair or stand, um, feel free to do that. Let's just take a posture of prayer here for just a moment. Father, Thank you for your great kindness towards us. And thank you for your great kindness towards me. Override my failures and my shortcomings as a father, as a husband, as a friend, as a pastor. I pray for the people I love and care for that they would not have to experience my mistakes. But I pray for my friends here as well that you nullify and obliterate and override our failures, our mistakes. We pray for our friends, our children, our neighbors, 
our co-workers, those that have hurt us, those that we've hurt. Help us to forgive them. Help us to live in your forgiveness, to be free. To be free, to be made whole, to be healed. Help us not to be bound to the past that your son Christ has paid all those crimes for. So help us to live in your liberty and forgiveness that others may experience you through our lives. Thank you for these stories. Help us to remember that our stories are never finished. They even continue when our lives are finished here. That we should surrender them, our lives, to you this, and let you become the author and the finisher of our faith. And so now in this moment, Father, I pray for the folks that are processing this and are connecting to you maybe in a different way. That they would leave change, that this would be a, a moment that they recognize they can live in your liberty and live in your freedom and live in your, because of your forgiveness towards us and your incredible love for us. You do work all things back to some good, healthy thing, even the most calamitous decisions that we make. We give you thanks. We thank you. We love you. We receive your kindness this morning, your, out of your mercy. Help us to live in your forgiveness. In your son's name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.